Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're going to be in John chapter 6. We're going to see how much of it we can get through, but there's a lot of interesting and different points that are made in this chapter. So, uh, as an outline before we get started, this chapter talks about the miracles of the loaves and fish, which we've heard multiple times. It also has a little blurb on the uh, Jesus walking on the water, which we can see in the other Gospels as well. Then there's a talk about how the multitudes followed after Jesus when he did that miracle with the loaves and fish, and then Jesus talking about um, how he is the bread of life and how we should seek after spiritual things. And then finally, after he gives that message, there's a talk about how it is very difficult for most people to understand what he was talking about. And we'll dive into that outline there. So starting off with John chapter 6, verse number 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So even before we get started, Ari says, after these things. So what happened? When we look to the other Gospels, something unique about the feeding of the 5,000 is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about this miracle. Other than the miracle of the resurrection, there's no other miracle that the four Gospels talk about. So it's pretty unique that they all will make reference to it. So what are these things that they're talking about? If you look to the other Gospels, it talks about John the Baptist and how he got beheaded. So for some context on that, if you guys remember Herod the Great, he's the king who was ruling over this area. He had two sons. Of course, he named them both Herod, but one was Herod Antipas, and another one was Herod Philip. Now, Herod Antipas really liked, he was married, and so was his brother, but he really liked the wife that his brother had. So they both ended up getting divorced, and Herod Antipas took that wife as his own. John the Baptist had none of it, so he said openly, this is something that's just against the law. You can't do that. Herod Antipas then put him into jail because he had the power and could do that. Despite putting him in jail, there's many references that we see where he actually enjoyed John the Baptist's presence because he would speak a lot of good things and you could learn a lot from the guy. Anyway, there was a time when he was giving a celebration as, you know, dignitaries and high kings would do. And he, his wife's daughter, so his uh, daughter-in-law, I guess you could say her by his step, he was offering anything she wanted, up to half the kingdom, because he was so impressed by the way she was dancing, and, and this was a, you know, he had dignitaries around him, just wanted to be impressive. So she went to the mother and asked, what is it that I should ask of the king? And the mother said, bring me the head of John the Baptist. So she requested that of the king. He was really dismayed, but he went forth with it because he had so many people around that he couldn't let down. After he was beheaded, it was that news that the apostles and Jesus learned about. So when it says, after these things, those are the things that were just coming about. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. So, people following after Jesus can do so for many reasons. In this instance, it says the multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he was doing on the diseased. When you go to the other Gospels and see exactly how this came about, after John the Baptist was beheaded, he went away 
probably to mourn, to pray by himself with the apostles. But a lot of people knew and heard about Jesus. They were following him. And he, there's a reference in, in uh, Mark where it says he had compassion when he saw these great multitudes of people because they looked like sheep without a shepherd. And we all know that he is the great shepherd. Now, following Jesus just because he could perform miracles isn't the best reason. We all know uh, that in the future, there will be prophets, false prophets, who will do miracles and great signs. And again, we can follow that, but that, again, will lead many astray. It's not the miracles in themselves that we should follow, but the person behind them. So it's a, it's a powerful reason, but not the best. Nevertheless, that's what the multitude was following for. And because there was a multitude, we could uh, continue on with verse 4. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus will often ask questions of disciples, already knowing the answer, but this is more just, uh, what, what do you guys think? And this reminds me of when uh, we go into St. Mary's for clinic or we do rounds, and, and the physicians will ask us, what is it you think we should do? What, what do you think the plan should be for this patient with you see with the symptoms? It's not that they don't know what to do. They're testing us to see if we have the knowledge, if we can apply it and make a cohesive plan out of it. So Jesus was doing the same with Philip. And, and why was he singling out Philip? Well, we know Philip, from this area that they were in around Sea of Galilee, came from Bethsaida, which is a city nearby. So he's a local. Supposedly, he would know what to do. And, and the test was, what would Philip think we should do? Is he going to try to buy some food? Is he try to go to the markets and get some connections to bring it up? Of course, we know Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But Philip answered him in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Denarii was a, a silver type of currency that they had back in those day. Uh, some references and some interpretations will say it's like a penny. And in truth, if you follow denarii over the centuries, it eventually was adopted by the British Empire to become a penny. And as you know, with currency, there's inflation and, and the value of it changes and the, the amount of silver in it changes. So uh, what was the worth of a denarii back then? When the, the coin was first minted, and this was back in about 211 B.C. when there were wars between the, the Warman Empire and the Carthage, um, the root of it, den, means ten, and it was worth ten donkeys. So with this one coin, it should be the value of ten donkeys. By the time that we come here, uh, the value of it has been a little bit depreciated. Um, nevertheless, when we look to other parts of the Bible, there's another parable that talks about how, if you remember when uh, there was a farmer hiring somebody in the morning, and he paid him one denarii for a day's labor, hired somebody at noon, but also paid them a denarii. So from that context, we could say, okay, so a denarii is roughly worth somebody's day's wages. And from other sources, we can see that a soldier, a common soldier, or an unskilled laborer would be paid one denarii for a day's work. So 200 denarii would be 200 days' wages for that day. And even with that much money, it wouldn't be enough to feed these people. The number that we see will be 5,000 men. And from the other Gospels, we see that that doesn't include the women and children that were present as well. 
So Philip, thinking with his carnal mind, not a spiritual one, was thinking, geez, I mean, 200 denarii, we could buy some food, but as long as everybody just eats a little tiny morsel of that, wouldn't even be enough. So verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And obviously, two fish and five barley loaves is clearly nothing. It's kind of like, maybe he was thinking in his mind, why did I even bring this up? What's the point to feed so many people? He's trying. In the Greek, um, when you look to the word for the two small fish, it implies that they're even morsels. Because if a little boy was the one carrying this food, it's going to be five tiny pieces of bread and two small fishes. So clearly a very meager amount. So it makes sense that that wouldn't be enough to feed everybody. Verse 10, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. This area of the Sea of Galilee, and from the context, we could get some more information about it. So we know that there was grass. It mentioned earlier that the feast of the Passover was soon. If you could just Google it, you'll see that Passover usually takes place around April. And they often would do celebrations about a month ahead of time. So maybe this is around that time spring just uh, came about. If you look at the Sea of Galilee on the globe, on the map, it kind of falls on the exact same latitude as San Diego. And as a Californian, I've been there several times. San Diego is a beautiful place. And the weather is just, it's always perfect. I don't know. Oh, I love that place so much. So imagine the Sea of Galilee with San Diego-type weather. We know the hills have grass. There's probably flowers and everything's great. Um, but people will get hungry. There's 5,000-plus people here. So Jesus says, have them sit down. When we look to the other Gospels, some of them mention how they were broken up into groups of 100, groups of 50, trying to get it organized. Anyway, verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they would want it. It's really interesting to see that he took these loaves and fish, and the first thing he did was give thanks, even though it was so little. I'm a huge fan of, of looking up the, the Greek words and seeing where they come from and looking up context so that I could get a better idea of what's going on. That word, uh, he had given thanks. Thanks in the Greek is Eucharisto, which sounds strangely familiar, like the Eucharist, which is communion. And that's what it is. We're giving thanks for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We're doing communion so that we remember his sacrifice for us. The first thing he did was to give thanks, and we should do the same, and we should with food and other blessings that he gives us. Another really interesting point here is that he distributed them to the disciples, and then the disciples distributed to the people. We know that all good things come from the Father. Um, when there could be trouble is when you put too many degrees of separation from what is good or any blessings that you get. So whether or not 
a gift that you receive, you might think it came directly from that person or somebody gave me this blessing that came from that person, but they themselves received it from somebody else. Eventually, when you tie it back to the very first source, it's God who gave it out to somebody and they distributed it to somebody else. So the, the distribution of blessings eventually always goes back to Jesus and God. He's the one who's the source of all good things and we have to remember that even though we get it from other sources, we know what the true source is. Verse 12. Even before then, let me go back a little bit, because it says, uh, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So it wasn't even that, the, just that everybody got the food that they desired, but they got to the point of, of being completely full, being completely stuffed with food. So God did not give them just enough. He gave them more than they needed, to the point that they were fully stuffed, that they could not want anymore. And this is an important point for later that we'll come back to. So verse 13. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which are left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Different commentaries speak to that fact that uh, every gospel always mentions that he gathered up the fragments of the food that was left over and they filled up 12 baskets worth. What, what's the meaning? What's the point of that? Some were saying that you should not waste, that there's always need. Even though that they fed the 5,000, there could be others nearby that needed some more food. There could be a use for what we no longer need. It's an interesting point that from so little came such an abundance And it's also important that we remember that this is a sign that Jesus clearly performed, that they knew that there were only a few barley loaves and a few fish, and 5,000 plus people saw this. It's important that they saw this come from nothing because the Jews have a history with seeing miracles happen. I mean, one of their greatest prophets was Moses, right? And when they were in the desert for 40 years, they had manna coming straight from heaven. And this is a miracle. I I don't know how I would feel if every day just food appeared from heaven. It sounds like we would be amazed, we'd be, you know, bowing down before the Lord. There's no way that we would ever have any doubts. But Jesus choosing the Jewish people as an example for the rest of us is because we probably would make the same mistakes. These guys got bread from heaven and they still complained. They were remembering all the good times that they had in Egypt and how they had meat and fish and they completely forgot about the slavery, about the oppression. And here they are getting manna from heaven, water from a rock, and we still want more. So here they are getting bread multiplied, fish multiplied, getting filled, another sign. And this jogged a memory that they had because they were raised knowing that eventually a Messiah will come. Moses was talking about a prophet that would come and and save us and be our savior. The word in Greek and in Hebrew when they talk about salvation and Savior, it's, um, it's interesting that you could break it up into two parts. Um, and the two parts that we see comes later on when Jesus eventually goes into Jerusalem on the uh, donkey and the Arabs saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. So going back to the Greek and you break up Hosanna into its uh, roots, 
the first part you can say is Yasha, and a derivative of that is Yeshua. So literally the word Jesus or Yeshua means salvation, means to save. And the second part is, uh, is a request, like, please save me now. So Jesus, please save me now. This is the prophet who we heard about. This is the prophet that we are expecting. When you have 5,000 people plus and they see the miracle that just happened, you got to remember in the context, we live in a, in a free society. We never had this oppression, but these guys are living under Roman rule. It is extremely oppressive. They are not free to do what they want. They're expecting a conquering savior to come by to place the crown on them so they could break the yoke of Roman rule and do as they wish. And in this populist movement, they said, this is the guy. This is the one that we're going to do. So they wanted to make him king immediately on the spot so that they could get their way. But God's timing is often not our timing. I know a lot of times I wish things would happen faster. I could get my prayers answered the way I wanted, but it just doesn't work that way. God knew that there's going to be a day coming forward, and that's when Jesus will be presented as the King and Savior. But today is not that day. Um, so in the other Gospels, when we see this happening, it says that they wanted to make him king on the spot, and Jesus slipped away and sent his disciples ahead across the Sea of Galilee so that he could avoid this premature coronation, this premature showing that he is the one, and this is the wrong time. So they slip away. The next verse, 15, kind of changing pace here. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Again, this was just the wrong time, so he, he left. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. So this is an important point. Jesus sent them ahead, and he himself went by himself to pray in the mountain. It's always good to be with others here. We're at church. We have friends. We're going to meet together and study the Bible. But what we see Jesus doing often is breaking away from the group and praying by himself and you know, having that relationship with God by himself. And that's a good example for us. We, we should do that. We should meet every Sunday and Wednesdays and, and other days of the week and hang out, have a good time. But it's also important that by ourselves, we develop that relationship with God. It's, it's just something that we see Jesus doing, and we should do the same. Verse 18. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. In the other Gospels, this similar story is told. And it's interesting that they were afraid of the storms. They were afraid of the, the crazy waters that were happening on the Sea of Galilee. But what really pushed them over the edge was seeing this ghost or this apparition on the water. And that can be applied to our lives now. There's often times where we could be in really difficult circumstances, or I don't know what I'm going to do for my finances, or the family is uh, having difficulties. But we can make up fake, uh, fake fears. And that's what they did. They saw a ghost on the water, and that's what made them really afraid. But there was no ghost, the ghost on the water. Uh, maybe they thought that it was a demon that was, you know, rising up the, the waters against them. But they were making up 
stories on stories and worst case scenarios and what if this is the real situation and, and we do the same there's so many times that I see in my classmates or even in my wife well they'll take one little fear and then what if this happens and then what if that happens and soon enough like for some reason we're in civil war and, and the worst case scenario is happening but again these are fears that we're making up and they, they did the same when they saw this apparition or ghost on the water in verse 20 he said it is I, do not be afraid. And this is also the same situation in the other Gospels where we see Peter walking in the water. And he says, Lord, if this is really you, then, then say, come, and I will come in the water. And that's when he walked in the water, and we knew that there was waves crashing, and he was able to walk, and then he lost sight of Jesus and then began to drown. Peter is really cool. He's the kind of guy that will say what's on his mind and just be really impulsive about it. Because it wasn't Jesus that, that chose Peter out of the boat to say, come to the water and walk. It was Peter who first asked, is that, if it's really you, say, come, and I will come. And Jesus said, you know, go for it. His impulsivity is good and bad, and we see many situations in the future where that happens, but uh, it would have never happened if he didn't ask. And we have to ask. Anyway, verse 21, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Every time I read something that I've read before in the Bible, it's really interesting that you'll pick up new things here and there. Verse 21, I, I was that whole, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. We just saw a few verses ago that they were about three to four miles in. When you look at the Sea of Galilee, it's about eight miles wide, 12 miles long, and we know they're halfway point to, towards Capernaum. When the waves were coming up and the wind was no longer in their favor, they had to use rows to actually try to go against the current, try to go to their destination. And it wasn't working until Jesus came on board. We saw in the other Gospels that the waters were immediately calmed, which we remember that from before when he was in the boat sleeping and said, Lord, do you just want us to perish? What's going on? And he commanded the ocean or the sea to be calm. So they've seen this before. This shouldn't be something new to them. And it's an interesting story that in our life, we can have difficulties. We will have storms around us. We'll be struggling against the currents. But the moment that we completely have Jesus on board, it'll be calm and we can get to our destination faster. This is immediately the boat was at land. Some commentators will say that immediately they were able to dock and some say that this was kind of like a transportation, uh, a teleportation thing. I don't know which way to take it. It, it is an interesting point that they were at land immediately. Um, another interesting point about this whole thing is that Jesus sent the disciples on the boat knowing that there would be a storm coming up. And this happens in our lives all the time. And it brings up the question of what is, what's up with suffering? Why would God knowingly send me into this situation. And, and you see this all the time at, at the hospital when you go room from room and you see people who are, are there for a chemotherapy, you see people who are there for a transplant gone wrong. And they don't know what's going on. They don't know how they got there. They look to us as a, even as a, a student. They have such absolute faith that we can fix the problem, that we know the answers. They, they don't know 
the training that I've had, the medicine that we've been studying, the new therapies that we're looking into. But they have absolute faith in us. They have complete hope that we can do something about it. And hope, hope is interesting. When you, when you look at the definition of hope, it's uh, broken up into desire and expectation. And you need to have both. I mean, like, I could hope to win the lottery. You know, that's a desire aspect of it. But my expectation of it is, is zero. I know that's not really possible. Likewise, if I'm speeding on the freeway and I get caught, I expect to show up in court and deal with that problem, but I don't desire it. So there's always one aspect missing. When you have desire and expectation together, then that's hope. And from Corinthians, we know that the chapter about love at the very end, it's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. We, we see that all the time. You see people who have faith and trust in us as, as doctors. They have the hope, the desire, or the expectation that we can do something to ease the situation. But it doesn't always work. And, and this question of suffering is brought up repeatedly over and over again, and we'll see the patients and, and us as uh, the doctors just wondering what's going on. But it's interesting that these same patients who have such faith and hope in us can oftentimes not have that faith and hope in God, which is interesting that you would put that in a human, but you wouldn't ascribe that to a higher power. Yeah. Um, faith and hope. Even as uh, my, my classmates, I'll see so much suffering. It's only been a year and a half that we've been in school, but we've already had one of our classmates go through a divorce. We've had another one who had his father die from a, from a heart attack. And that's just a year and a half in. I expect as the years come, more is bound to happen. So these questions come up. Why, why is there suffering? Why does it happen? I can't give you an answer for why that happens. I could tell you what it's not. We know the story of when there was a blind man and the disciples asked Jesus, why is this guy blind? Did his father's, did his mother do something wrong? Did he commit some sin? And Jesus said, no, it's neither. That has nothing to do with it. He's here so that you could see the miracles that I'm about to form, perform. Um, we were talking recently about King David. If I were to ask what is one sentence you could give me about King David. And what we often hear is, he's a man after God's own heart, which is a really amazing description. But King David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He married Bathsheba and many other women. His first son with Bathsheba was stricken ill. And I can't even imagine what it'd be like for somebody's son to be on the verge of death. We, we see that King David was praying fasting, pleading with the Lord, don't let this happen, make it some other way. If you were to ask me, did he lack faith? Are you kidding me? This guy, a man after God's own heart, is lacking faith and that's why his son is dying? That's not, that's not it. His son eventually died anyway and he realized this is just the reality. The suffering enters. We were cursed from the moment Adam and Eve sinned and this is what God is allowing to happen. Another one of David's son, Absalom, had open rebellion against him. His own son. Uh, King Solomon turned away from God because of his wives. His two sons broke up the kingdom of Israel. 
So those, I, you gotta remember when my, my dad, uh, this is years ago, uh, he got cancer. And in our church, this is a micro minority, certainly not what everybody was thinking, but he got cancer. And there were some people in the church who were saying, your faith is too small. If you had enough faith, you would be healed. That's nonsense. I mean, we, we, I always look to the Bible to see what examples do we have to see if this is true or false. And Jesus himself, certainly nobody could say that he lacked faith, right? He was praying to the Father, saying, if there's any other way, any other way than this crucifixion to happen, can it be done? And, and we know the answer is no. This had to be the way. But he asked, there's no lack of faith there. And there's no lack of faith in my dad or other. So people who are going through suffering, it's not necessarily their fault. It's not their parents' fault. It's not a lack of faith. This isn't really answering why does God allow the suffering. We, we could see Paul talking about how when you go through suffering, it allows you in the future to help those who are going through the same thing. When people go through suffering, it's like a proving fire so that you can be stronger for it. But in some cases, people will go through suffering and we see it and, and they'll die from their disease. There's no easy answer. And, and the takeaway point here is that we know God has absolute love for us. We, we have that faith. We know he's absolutely wise. And we have to put trust in him. Right? Isaiah says, my ways are not your ways. Why would we think that we understand what God is doing and he should work according to our plan and this is how it should work? It, we just have to have faith that his plan is going through and it's not our our problems or our uh, desires that should dictate how the world runs. It's a difficult question. And all that just from uh, Jesus sending somebody on the scene, knowing that they go through a storm. But he also knew that he would be there to save them from it. And we should have that realization as well. We'll never be through a storm alone. Verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So we got to give some credit to these multitudes, and it's they were following after Jesus. They had the food, they were full. Jesus and the disciples left, and they were curious, where did he go? And, and there's something to be said about people who will follow after and pursue this knowledge of Jesus or are curious about uh, the concepts of Christianity and the religion in general. Verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves of bread and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So he doesn't really answer the question, right? They asked, how'd you get here? We saw the disciples leaving alone. We saw you slipping away but how did you get here? And, and Jesus doesn't answer the question at all and says, you guys followed me again for reasons that were not the best, right? You followed me because you were full of food yesterday. 
that food perishes, but the food which endures to everlasting life. He's going to expand on this as we see in the verses to come. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? It seems like a legit question. They really are curious, what is he doing? Um, It doesn't say it overtly here, but we see in other places that they're probably at the synagogue at this point in Capernaum. And we've seen that before when when Mary thought she lost Jesus and, and he was in the synagogue the entire time saying, where else would I be but the house of my father? So even the multitudes knew, like, if you're looking for Jesus, you go towards the synagogue, that's where he's going to be, and that's most likely where they are now. Verse 30, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And this is mind-boggling. Like, these guys literally just saw him multiply loaves and fish and feed 5,000-plus people, and yet they're here asking Jesus, are you going to perform a sign for us? Like, how are you going to prove that uh, it was God that sent you? And it's, it's just uh, how quick we are to forget the miracles that we've, had, that we've seen in our lives and the lives of others. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now this bread, the manna, who knows what it tasted like. It came from heaven. Uh, maybe it was an angelic food. I have no idea if it was sweet and tasty. But barley, when you look to the commentators, is not the tastiest of breads. This area is really well known for their wheat. And that bread was decadent, and that's the nice one. But they had barley, which is a lower class of bread. So they're already complaining about a miraculous bread that they had and comparing it to the manna of their fathers. You know, Moses... When you go to 32, um, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So these guys are thinking, you know what? Moses served bread from heaven to hundreds of thousands of people. You served barley bread to a few thousand. Like, it's, it's just a mind-boggling comparison and, and Jesus is trying to give them an example of, yeah, that's, that's fleshly stuff, but let's see if we can give a parable about spiritual bread. Verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always, the bread that comes from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And we just saw that with the signs of the multiplying of the food. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. This, uh, again, going back to the Greek when it says, um, the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, it's, it's phrased in a double negative, and not like a double negative where you make something positive, but it's, uh, it's said in the way, um, those who come to me, I will not, no, I will not cast out. Like, it's an affectionate, strong phrase. He will not, in any situation, allow somebody who comes to him to be denied. It's, uh, it's a really, affectionate is the best way I could think of to describe how strong he is in the feeling that anybody who comes towards him, he will accept. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all 
that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now for us, knowing, having been in church for a while, knowing what is the context here, it makes sense. Yes, Jesus came down. We know he's going to be crucified and raised up. But these guys have no idea about that. All they know is that they see this guy talking about how he came down from heaven and that he is the bread of life that he's supposed to be serving to us. That sounds kind of weird. It sounds kind of extreme. And in the verses that we keep going, it's going to get even worse. Verse 41, The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So not only is it a crazy-sounding claim that he's making, but they knew his family. And they're, and they're just incredulous that how is this possible that this guy's claiming to come down from heaven and that he's some food that we're supposed to eat. If that's not bad enough, it, it continues further. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he's claiming I came down from heaven. He's claiming I'm the food that's being sent for you, and he's claiming that I'm going to resurrect people at the end. And he heard that there were murmurs going on. So he continues, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. One important thing that we can draw from this is that um, God, through no work of our own, can we ever convince somebody about the truth of God. It's important that we, you know, carry out the Great Commission and, and do and lead by example. But unless God does that supernatural work in somebody's life and draws him to himself, uh, nothing will happen. That's, that's the key point. This doesn't mean you should just relax because God's going to do all the work. Like, we do have a great commission, but it's important to realize it's not ever through any work of our own that we can just reason out or logic with somebody um, that, yes, this is the, the reality and the truth of the world. Uh, okay, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from the heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So this guy came down from heaven. This guy is the bread of life. He's saying he's going to resurrect people, and now he wants me to eat his flesh and drink his blood. In the mind of... I remember when, my, when I was young, and my, I grew up in the church, so this made perfect sense. It's just a, a parable. It's not literal. 
But people who don't have that context are going to hear this and be like, that is cannibalism. That's insane. And it sounds that way. And that's what these Jews were saying. Like, I know this guy, dude. I know Joseph and Mary. He's, he's not somebody who came down from heaven. He wants me literally to eat his flesh and blood. That's ridiculous. And in the context, it sounds that way. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when he heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And, and that makes sense. If you take it at face value, who is going to understand that? Who can really stomach this, this claim? And even the Catholic Church, we see that they interpreted it to be literal in, in the concept of transubstantiation. But, more, I mean, we don't, it's, it's a parable. It's, it's not meant to be taken literally. God, when he says, I am, when Jesus says, I am the bread, and that will nourish you, he's speaking spiritual. It's going to nourish and feed your spiritual life. Everlasting life will be spiritual, not your body. Your body is going to die just like the Jews did when they ate the manna. And that's why he says, I'm going to raise it up on the last day. So he's taking care of us physically in the end by resurrecting us. And he's taking care of our spiritual life by giving us the bread of life, which is him. So when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And, and we live in a society where, even in my class, I see my, my classmates so far on the edge of everything is offensive, don't offend me, your, your statements about being Christian are offensive. It's gone so far overboard that when they were trying to include all types of people and, and discriminate against no one, that they are now discriminating against the minority of us as Christians, which is a really weird thing to see. It's really sad to see in, in a classroom where you would think people are a little more open-minded too. But Does this offend you? What then if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And, and we see this. These guys saw a miracle literally with their eyes, and they still don't believe. We saw that with Thomas, where he did not believe until he saw the wounds of Christ. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by my Father. Again, a reference from before. No one comes to me unless God draws them first. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And that's basically the multitudes that were there said, this is too much to handle. I can't do it. I don't understand it. And they just left. And, and we know that the road is narrow. We know that following Jesus was never a promise that life would be, you know, peachy and rosy and things would just go well. So people left. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter, again, speaking what everybody's thinking, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. 
we see this happening all the time where, where God will, knowing what's coming up, choose regardless. I mean, if you think about it as an overall theme for humanity, he created humans knowing that we would sin, knowing that we would cause him so much grief and trouble. But the eventual promise uh, and hope that there will be us who love him, who have faith in him, who trust him, was enough to still create humankind. He sent the apostles in the water knowing they would go through a storm, but also knowing that he would help them. He chose the 12 apostles knowing that one of them would ultimately betray him to the cross. It's a very interesting chapter that we just went through. The outline that we had for it were the miracles of the loaves and the fish, Jesus in the water when he sent the apostles across Galilee, the, the multitudes pursuing after Jesus, asking questions, learning that the difficulty of carnal food versus spiritual food can really be something hard to grasp, and eventually they fell away. But the 12 remained, and we can imagine there were others in the synagogue that were thinking about it too. Um, so this is great. We learned a few things, I hope. Uh, but how would we apply this to our life here and now? And one thing I think would be to focus on the aspect of how suffering can cause us to help those around us, how we thankfully are now in a post-election period, but it's going to be us as spiritual ambassadors to those around us. We got to show the people around us that we are different, that there's something going on that makes it worthwhile. And as we start building up this church and, and everything starts get building up, people will be looking towards us. And I think that they see that we're not falling away from the faith, that we are living by a different code. That is what's going to speak to them. When you look towards them on the, on the boat, they saw that Jesus calmed the waters before. They saw that he had power over you know, nature. And they knew that their ancestors, like Moses and prophets, could do miracles. But it wasn't until they saw Jesus reaching for... Uh, Peter, who was walking in water, that they were like, wow, there is something really up going on here because we know Peter. We knew him from when he was younger and we worked with him. And now he's able to do these things that Jesus is doing. It's kind of like a crux point where they start to believe what's really going on. In those around us, it's not going to be until they start seeing these different you know, codes of life, these different things happening in our life, that they're going to be like, wow, I knew John. I knew Carl. I knew Dan. Like, that's different, and they're going to see that, and that's what's going to be applied to their life. So that's the takeaway point I feel that we can get. Um, it was a very varied chapter. But hopefully you learned something. That's what I have for you.